Good to see you guys this morning. Welcome if you are here for the first time, as uh, Nathaniel said. My name is Richard and I'm one of the pastors here. We are coming towards the end of our series in 2 Corinthians now, just this week. And next week, we've been in a series called Prepare, because we are preparing for a whole new season at Gateway, well, a, a whole new thing at Gateway when we complete our building project up at Alder Road and we meet as one church, but in two locations. But um, this morning, what I want to do is start with a bit of a pop quiz. So, and there will be prizes for this as well. So I'm going to give you the quote, and nice and loudly, I need you to tell me who you think the quote is from. In the first service, I couldn't quite hear the answers. So whoever gets this first, I'm going to throw a chocolate at. Just to, um, just to uh, warn you, chocolate does contain milk and may contain nuts. So be aware. I'm a trustee of the church as well, so I have liabilities. Great. Who said this? I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. Don't tell me I can't do something. Don't tell me it's impossible. Don't tell me I'm not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. Priska gets the Muhammad Ali. Excellent. Okay, you're out now for round two. You only get one chocolate. Okay. I am the number one human being in music. That means any person that's living or breathing is number two. Who said that? Excellent. Kanye West. Okay, a little bit more topical. Think football this time. My mother thinks I'm the best, and I was raised to always believe what my mother tells me. Someone in the first ever said it was me. Who said that? I'd go with that. Who said that? Who? No. Yes. There you go. Fantastic. Good. Well, that's all I've got for you this morning. God bless and goodbye. Okay, so obviously these statements do range from uh, kind of a bit of fun and harmless showmanship. Um, but sometimes actually boastful statements can be a little bit more sinister. Who, who remembers this famous quote? It's, a, it's actually a little bit debatable whether it was actually said, but it's entered into our lexicon anyway. Not even God can sink her. What was that about? Titanic. You get two. There you go. It's allegedly said by the company who built the Titanic. Right, this one here. We're more popular than Jesus now. Who said that? John Lennon, Mark, you get one. In the same interview, Rolling Stone, he said, I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. We know how that one worked out. The, uh, the book of 2 Corinthians that we're in, this book that Paul writes, a letter that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, which has stood immortalized in Scripture for the last two millennia, from where we've been preaching for the last three months, that thousands of Christians have read and studied for the last 2,000 years, has 13 chapters. And three of them are to do with the theme of boasting. And so it's clearly something that we need to think about and understand as we prepare for this next season of life at Gateway and all that that means for us. So today, we're going to prepare for boasting. Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians because there has been a serious relational breakdown between him and the church that he's trying to restore. And the nature of the breakdown is actually quite important to understand um, in order to kind of get why Paul gives so much of this book to the theme of boasting, both bad boasting, which is bad for us or damage us, and as we'll see as we work through this good boasting, which is actually what we're all called into. So the nature of the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians was this. Paul, Paul had traveled to Corinth 
as he traveled through Greece and Turkey and the Middle East, preaching the gospel. And he had started this church and helped to establish it, and then he'd moved on to the next place. And he maintained contact with the Corinthians and the other churches through occasional visits and letters and that sort of thing. Now, Corinth was a fairly unique place in many ways, very similar to our own kind of culture, in that it was very um, emphasizing or uh, rooted in health and wealth and prosperity and happiness. The cultural narrative was essentially do whatever you want and whatever you can to be happy and healthy and wealthy. Don't worry too much about the cost, financial or even in terms of your own values and the effect on others. Just do what it takes to satisfy yourself and elevate yourself. And again, just like in our own society, there developed out of this a culture of celebrity. So the well-dressed and the well-spoken and the beautiful and the rich were perceived to be the most important people in society, and the poor and the normal were right down the social scale. And so it was actually a prime environment for three things to emerge in the church. The first thing was a celebrity type of leadership culture. Christian celebrity is a contradiction in terms. Of course, there are some Christians who are better known than others for all sorts of reasons. But to make a celebrity out of a Christian in the way that we understand celebrity in our own culture is antithetical to a gospel in which we qualify ourselves for salvation, partly by our recognition of our weakness and our inability to save ourselves, and therefore, our need for a savior. And secondly, this, of course, made the Corinthians susceptible to adopting and to listening to those voices that came from the richest and the most beautiful in society, rather than the people that God had placed over them to care for his church, like Paul, for example. And thirdly, all of this led to what theologians call over-realized eschatology. I just want to take a moment to unpack that, because it's still a, a huge problem for the church today, and it's, it's why we work really hard in our preaching team to be as accurate as we can and to check with each other and to try and stay accountable to what we're preaching. Over-realized eschatology is, is really worth having your eyes open to. As, as Christians, we live in both the now and the not yet of what God is doing. And this creates a tension in which we need to uh, live here and now with all the realities and the suffering of life as it presents itself, and also with an eye to the future, the end time, the Greek word for which is eschaton, hence eschatology, in which we are gloriously given eternal life with new resurrection bodies and perfect love and fellowship and complete eradication of pain and sin will exist when we meet with our Savior in heaven. This is all good stuff. It's the hope that Christianity offers, but it's not fully realized yet. So to be over-realized in your understanding of the eschaton, of the end, to have an over-realized eschatology is to place a wrong emphasis on those aspects of the future glory of the kingdom with the reality of life as it actually is now. And it's very, very damaging because it tells you that as a Christian, you can be, in fact, you should be rich 
and powerful and beautiful in a physical way now with money and health and things like that that is actually reserved for the spiritual realities of life with Christ then. Do you follow? Okay, good. And the danger, of course, is that this line of thinking leads many to believe, therefore, that we should have these kind of future blessings now, but in a way that our society perceives blessing, which is through health and wealth and beauty and that sort of thing. And there are those who teach this as a kind of health and wealth, prosperity gospel. Very often it's seen in some of the, the worst kinds of tele-evangelism, I'm sure you've con- your pictures in your mind, where self-professed pastors go on TV and tell you that If you send in sums of cash, then God will provide some kind of a blessing, riches and health for you. And in the worst of the worst cases, some of these tele-evangelists, these prosperity teachers, as they're known, have made literally millions of pounds peddling the gospel to people who just can't afford to hand over sums of cash like that because they're desperate. Now, this is a dangerous reality today that we should have our eyes open to. And it's another good reason that we would really emphasize being part of a church like this. It's not somewhere you come to, but it's a people that we are because we're on a journey together as a family. And as we do so, we hold one another accountable to the gospel. And instead of offering some kind of pie-in-the-sky gospel, together we assess God's will for us. Together we work for God's purposes. And together we operate to help one another to believe the gospel, both in the highs of life and when things don't go so well too. Now, because of the culture of health and wealth and prosperity in Corinth, in come their version of these health and wealth prosperity preachers, and the people just love them. And these guys are charging extortionate sums of cash to come in and preach the gospel. And their rationale for all of this is that they're superior to Paul. They have superior knowledge of the Bible. They have superior knowledge of Jesus. I mean, look at how well-dressed and educated and and articulate we are. And the fact, they say, that they can charge for this service is by contrasting their celebrity with Paul, who's just a really ordinary-looking guy. He's not the best-looking guy in town, and he serves the church for free, and he's just a normal bloke. And what you have here is a situation where these boastful, self-promoting people have come into the church, laying out all their credentials, and they've driven Paul's voice out of the church. But Paul loves this church too much to let this lie. And so he writes to respond to all of this. And boy, does he write three chapters of 2 Corinthians, chapters 10 to 12, and they're absolute zingers. He sarcastically starts off by calling these false apostles, uh, sorry, these false teachers, super apostles. And then he goes to work deconstructing what they are claiming and preaching and setting straight the reality of the gospel and all that it calls us into. So we're going to look at some verses between chapters 10 and 12 to just kind of trace through the story. In in chapter 10, verse 7, he starts out by saying, Corinthians, you're judging by appearances, or in some versions, simply open your eyes and look at the obvious facts. That alone is pretty good advice for us as Christians in a world that bombards us with anti-gospel messages. Open your eyes. Look at the obvious facts. In all the noise and the hype, remember the realities of the gospel, what Jesus has done in your life, what's been done for you by him, and what that therefore calls you into in terms of how to live. 
And then in chapter 10, verse 12, Paul begins his response to his critics by saying, we, Paul and co, do not dare to classify or compare ourselves by some who commend themselves. And then there's kind of hammer blow in chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. He says, but let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For, and this is excellent advice for us, Gateway, and it's really good advice for our boastful culture. It is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And then he says, okay, I really don't want to have to do this, but because boasting is sinful and silly and wrong, but if that's what you're being convinced by, okay, let me do a bit of boasting, and let's examine their claims in light of that. So they are saying what qualifies them is their fine language and their superior knowledge of the Bible and of Jesus and their superior sense of mission and care for the church, and that's why they say they deserve to be paid by you for the privilege of hearing the free gospel. And so he just goes for it. And here we go. Here's some excerpts from uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, some of which I've paraphrased ever so slightly just to make it a bit more understandable. Now, I want you to imagine as I'm reading this what this would have been like for these false teachers, these super apostles, as they're standing in the church and this letter's read out, or in the community, a small community, as, uh, as these, this letter's passing around and being read out. Paul says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am more. Let me demonstrate. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers." I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. In those days, it was common for the Caesars to write a list of all their great accomplishments and to send it around the empire to remind the people of their greatness. And Paul kind of parodies this by, by listing his hardships and his weaknesses. Five times he has the 39 lashes. That was the highest form of punishment that you were allowed to give for blasphemy. He had that five times. That's 195 lashes across the back. Every time he preached, he knew he might get another 39. That's a remarkable statement of love and sacrifice for the church. Three more times, beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, the only reason he survived that, you can read about this in Acts 14, was because of the people stoning him were just inefficient. They thought he was dead, so they left him there. Three times, he was in a shipwreck. I was saying in the first service, a few weeks back, I lost one of my Converse trainers. You should have heard me. I was like a man under a curse. Three times he was shipwrecked on one of those occasions in literally the middle of nowhere. So he's just bobbing around in the open sea for 24 hours. Can you imagine that? All for the sake of the gospel. And yet on he goes 
if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness, he says. And then he talks about an experience he had with Jesus. 14 years ago, I was caught up in a vision to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I'll boast about that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. This guy is not living the health and wealth lifestyle that these celebrity preachers were. He is committed to clawing his way, if he has to, around the ancient world to preach the gospel. He's making tents as he goes to support himself, and he's getting absolutely battered at every turn. Why would a person do that? Surely only a person who is really seen and really savored and really believes and really loves Jesus would do such a thing. And that's Paul. And so when the Lord allows, after all of this, a thorn in Paul's side, whatever that thorn was, we need to see it as much as anything as a kindness to Paul to stop him from becoming like the puffed-up celebs of the day. And that is also a helpful way of framing the thorns in our own lives as well. When we face the thorny challenges of life, we need to adopt a mentality that says simultaneously, Lord, if, if it's your will, please take this from me. And at the same time, but help me to surrender to what you're doing through this hardship in my life. And that is why the health and wealth, prosperity gospel, where you are taught that you should never face illness or hardship if you're a Christian, and you deserve nothing but wealth and lavish living, because that's what God would want for you, is totally bankrupt and heretical. That was certainly not Paul's story. That was certainly not Jesus' story. And Paul wrote most of the New Testament, because the logical certainty of holding that position is that when things go wrong according to your health and wealth philosophy, who is to blame? God, it must be. So it actually undermines faith and trust and perseverance and hope of something better in eternity with Christ. And so when Paul says he asked the Lord three times to remove this thorn, we get a response that is good for us to kind of stick up on the fridge door and hide away in our hearts and to rehearse over and over again and to live by because it's a key weapon in our battle to live the Christian life in a hostile world. Paul says, chapter 12, verse 8 and 9, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it, this thorn, away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Just Think about that for a moment. In every single situation you find yourself today or ever, God says this, my grace is sufficient for you. I am all you need, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. In other words, my power in your fragile life is perfect in that it achieves all that I intend it to through your weakness and your surrender to me. Whatever you're facing, I'm doing something of value in you. Which is why a few chapters earlier, Paul says that, that we, followers of Christ, carry around 
the all-surpassing power of God in our hearts and in our fragile bodies, which he calls jars of clay, simple and easily broken vessels, just like us. Our hope in all of life's hardships is the power of God within to help us overcome trials and to live for him. Hence, his grace is all that we need. It is sufficient for us. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you must boast, don't boast in yourself. It's bankrupt. Even at a kind of a psychosocial level, there are research studies that show that boasting in yourself just alienates you from other people. And as Christians, even more so, we, every good thing we have comes to us in the first place from God the Father. I heard someone once say, no point kind of showing God all your amazing talents and gifts because he gave them to you in the first place. So boast in him, boast in God, boast in your weakness, boast in your inability to save yourself and to fix yourself and to make yourself whole. Because in that weakness, God works to perfect his plan in your life. It's one of those beautiful paradoxes that you see in the New Testament. Over and over, we see it's, it's the one who is lowly who the Lord lifts up, and it's the proud that he brings down. He gives us his rightness, and he takes away our wrongness. He takes people who run away from God, and he presents them back to God. He gives us power. And he makes our weakness the greatest source of our strength. It's Christ at work in you and me. Lord, remove this from me because I can't do it myself. And Lord, surrender. help me to surrender to what you're doing because you're perfect and you know what I need. It's a, it's a really helpful paradigm to have. It's a helpful way to pray as well for yourself and for all sorts of situations. I've been praying like that recently for the war in the Ukraine. Lord, please would you bring peace? Please would you bring an end to that war? Jesus, would you please make yourself known through what you're doing there? There are um, there's a couple of things that I want us to take from all of this and to be challenged by and to apply to ourselves. The first one's obvious, really. It's, it's, it's a question. It's, it's this. What are you boasting in and, and why, I suppose? By, by definition, boasting is a way to project yourself into the world as somehow worthy and special. That's a, that's a deeply held cry of the human heart, and it's, it's put there by God, so it's, it's okay to acknowledge that. Maybe it's just that you're boasting to yourself in an attempt to build your self-esteem, and maybe it's not even a type of boasting that comes from the lips, but it's, it's held in the heart. Maybe, just maybe, if you can convince the world and convince yourself that your achievements and attributes are worthy, then somehow you are worthy. Now, the opposite of boasting is not belittling yourself or self-deprecation. That's, that's equally destructive. It's humility, which for all sorts of good reasons the gospel calls us into. I'm certainly not advocating for a complete eradication of self-worth. I'm just calling for it to be rooted in the right place. In fact, I would argue that in order to be humble, you need to be super confident. Confident enough in Christ and what he's done in you to know that your achievements don't actually matter in the grand scheme, only his do. And that is such a liberating place to find yourself. Because if your self-worth and your value come from things that you are or things that you've done, 
then there's a kind of a half-life to these sorts of things. Because if you base your confidence on, on temporal, earthly things that age and run out, when they start to crumble, you've got to run around like a mad thing, kind of building them back up and curating them and mending and working to hold it all together. It's, it's like the story of that boy who sticks his finger in the hole in the dam wall when water sprays out, and then another leak springs, and he sticks his finger there, and before you know it, he hasn't got enough fingers, and the wall comes down anyway. The, the writer James K.A. Smith says that our culture has only two speeds, either quit or win. But perhaps our ambition to win, our boasting, is a hunger to be noticed, maybe even a lifelong unarticulated hunger to be noticed by a father, to hear him say, well done, you did it. But even that's not why he loves you. You don't have to win, but you also don't have to quit. You only have to quit performing. Quit imagining his love is earned. All other ambitions are fragile and fraught. The attention of others is fickle. Domination of others is always temporary. Muhammad Ali certainly can't claim to be the greatest anymore. Achievement and attainment is a goddess, he says, who quickly turns a cold shoulder. Boasting, externally or internally, is just part of an endless, exhausting quest to prove your worthiness. But we, followers of Jesus, find our rest in Christ and in all that he has done, which will never crumble or fail. I've had many times like this myself. I'm actually demonstrating it right now. For, for years, I said, I am not called to be a pastor or a preacher. I was doing pretty well in my career. Things were going well. I thought, I'm pretty good at this stuff, so this is what I'm going to do to identify myself to myself and to the world as successful. And pastoring and preaching was for other people. I'm pretty good at this, so I'm just going to stick here. This is where my confidence and self-worth is, so I'm just going to give myself to that stuff instead. I was comparing myself to others, and I was listening to the internal arbitrary voices which I thought would give me self-worth or to potentially undermine it. For me, to do something so vulnerable and so public like preaching was to expose my shortcomings. So I just said no to it until one day God really got my attention on this matter. And he spoke to me from Isaiah 51:16, And he said, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who make Zion. Now, who are you that you forget the Lord, your maker? It was a slap in the face. I was in my heart choosing to boast in my own abilities to do something, and without knowing it, to curate that impression when my desire and my boasting and my self-belief should have been in the Lord and his purposes for me. Even if it exposed me in all the ways that might cause me pain. And so I prayed, Lord, please take this from me. I don't want this. And Lord, please help me to surrender to you and for your, to your purposes for my life. Mold me and make me in your image for your purposes, not my own. And so, it is in my weakness that I can stand here Sunday after Sunday, knowing that in this fragile jar of clay, just like in, for the rest of us, I carry around the power of God, which is made perfect in my weakness, and therefore His grace is sufficient. The only place we're going to establish a baseline of self-worth is in what God says about us, not what we think about ourselves, not in our boast. St. Augustine, who I love, a 
teacher from the fourth century prayed, God, be our glory. Let it be for your sake that we are loved. Don't let it be us that are glorious. Don't let it be because we are great that we are loved. Far be it for us to boast in our own ability and seek glory from ourselves. You be our glory. God says, weakness is good. Come to me in your weakness. After all, how else would you know you need a savior? It's the very recognition of your weakness that qualifies you for salvation, for mercy, for grace. He tells us that what really matters is his grace in our lives. Only his grace is sufficient. The second thing is our boast should be in Christ alone. Just as we shouldn't be a people who boast in ourselves and in our own glory, so too not to boast is also not an option for us. We should boast, but there's only one proper boast and only one proper basis for boasting. Paul says it in chapter 10, uh, verse 17, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. There's a type of boasting gateway that we are called to. There's a type of boasting that does us good. It does build our confidence. It gives us hope, and it strengthens our fragile selves. It's to boast in the one from whom you came, in whom you find your very being, and to whom one day you're returning. In a time in human history like this, where the values and the trinkets of our culture, wealth and success are these new gods that we bow to, where the cult of celebrity looms large, where the prevailing cultural narrative is that you can and should do whatever you want and be whoever you want, and you'll shine like a star in a universe of your own making. It's ubiquitous. It's on every billboard. It's in our music. It's been the punchline of pretty much every Disney film made in the last 15 years that our kids have absorbed. You are glorious. Just be yourself, and it'll be fine. In a time such as this, let us remember that the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The alternative to boasting in our achievements and our brilliance is not to boast in nothing. It's to boast in the Lord, in the cross, in his achievements, and in his brilliance. The most godlike that God ever appears in all of human history is on the cross as justice and mercy meet when Jesus surrenders to the perfect will of the Father and in his human weakness gives up his life. This fragile clay vessel that he carried around on a broken, tatty old piece of timber as blood and water flowed from him and he gasps his final breath and he simultaneously completely overcomes death and sin and metaphorically drags all of us with him through the brick wall that we had built up between us and God and he gives us life and hope and peace and salvation. It was on a cross, crucifixion, in the Roman world, the highest symbol of weakness and helplessness and shame, that our God prevails victorious for himself, for us, over all things, and for all time. It's in that God, and it's in that cross that we glory, and that the nations find their glory, because he alone is the boast of the nations. He alone is worthy. It's why heaven will be filled with the boasts of the angels and the kings and the nations as we gather to the throne and sing together our boast one day. When we worship, by the way, we're boasting in our God. 
And in heaven, this will be our boasting song. Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. If Jesus isn't your boast, if you don't yet know Jesus, there's opportunity for that today. I'd love to talk to you. We all would. Come and chat with one of us afterwards. If you are skewered by the ongoing need to keep building up this wall of self-esteem and self-value, what can I do or what can I project to the world that will make me feel valuable? In light of this worthy king to whom every human heart will one day bow and to whom every angel in heaven centers their praise, praise around, you can replace all that exhausting work by making Jesus your boast today. When all's been said and done, when one day all our vainglorious works appear just as burnt stubble, when we stand before this worthy and holy king, there will be no self-congratulation. There will be no boasting in self. There will only be worship. We will boast only in the Lord. So rest today. Lay down your striving, your running, your independence from God, your crushing need to keep your fragile self-esteem afloat, come to Jesus. Make your boast in Christ. Lay down all that it is that you oppose in him, all the independence, all the striving, all the building. Find rest today, O my soul, in Christ alone. Make him your boast today. Let's pray. Jesus, I do thank you so much that you went to the cross for us and we sometimes forget the power of what you achieved that day when you ransomed us from death by removing our sins and the temple curtain was torn open and the way to the Father was made open for all people, people like us, completely unworthy. Nothing, absolutely nothing that we contributed to that. Nothing that we could bring and provide as credentials that you hadn't already achieved for us on the cross. So Lord, I just pray today that for us as a people, we would once again root ourselves in you, make our boast in you. Lord, and I pray that where we have struggled to do this, where we are a people who work so hard to appear and present ourselves as worthy, Lord, we repent of that today. We say we're sorry. Lord, help us again to orient our hearts and our eyes and our minds back to the source of all our boasting, our weakness and our surrender to you and your victory in our lives. Be glorified, I pray. Amen.